Howdy, online family. Thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. I'm Ryan Gagnon. We're going to be hearing today from Pastor Michael Lockstanfor as he continues our latest sermon series, What's the Church For? A Study in 1 Timothy. We've prayed about how best to meet our community with the gospel message of Jesus. We believe this digital component is a way of meeting our community here on the internet. We hope God uses it to encourage and challenge you. We also encourage you to serve a local church body. Remember, you can't be the church by yourself. Take a moment and think about the ways in which you've served people in the last week. Maybe it was your spouse, your kids, coworkers, or even your boss. If those folks were handed a comment card, how would they have graded your service? Would they have witnessed someone with a joy giving freely of themselves to help or someone with clenched teeth or rolled eyes just getting things done? Let's apply that same standard more broadly now to the church. We've been learning these last few weeks how God has designed the church and what its purpose is. Today's lesson may be one of the hardest for us to apply. We can understand and even enjoy serving those that we like to hang out with. But what about those we don't know as well? What about the widows, the military veterans, the abused, the homeless, etc.? Those are easily forgotten and ignored people. We must ask ourselves how Jesus treated them. What grade would they give our church? Let's listen in together as we learn from 1 Timothy chapter 5 that we are for serving those who might not be highly valued. I had an interesting experience this week that I'd like to share with you. Somebody, uh, I was explaining a little bit of the transition of what's happening here at Grace, and I had told them that I'd been on the pastoral team, and we, um, we'd been serving together for three years, and our lead pastor was resigning, and he was going to be moving on, and then I'd be stepping into the lead role. And they, they knew that I work during the week, and so they, they said, well, well, if you're preaching, like, how many hours do you put into sermon prep? And I said to her, all of them. And she didn't understand what I meant. It's, it's amazing when we come to a text, and we plan this out as a, as a team. We, we have laid out months and months ago of where we're going to be this week in God's Word. And it's always astounding to me when we get to those weeks, the things that come up are a challenge to everything that I'm trying to piece together in a sermon. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, as we talk about serving, this hits right where Grace Church is on three or four different levels this week. And I'm excited to share it with you in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, I just, I don't know where to start. Let's look at the first verse here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I think you'll understand a bit what I mean. He says, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we're dropping in to the middle of a section, and he starts off with this imperative. Just out of the blue, out of nowhere. And if this is your first week with us, that seems really odd. But we've done a whole lot of work as we've gone through the first four chapters of 1 Timothy. 
So where do we start this morning? Well, I really want to go back to chapter one and walk you all the way through it, but you guys, I can already tell, are not going to go with me for that. So what I want to do is I'll walk through the bulletin with you because I work hard to try and make what we sing together connect with what we're preaching. We started with a song called Your Name is Matchless, which starts off with a declaration that we were sinners, we were orphans, we were abandoned. When we came into this world, none of us asked to be here, and yet God has placed us here. And we didn't know who God was. Maybe we had a family who taught us who God was, but we didn't actually know him. We had never met him. And as you read the Old Testament, it's over and over again, God introducing himself to people. Hey, I'm God. You don't know me because you've forgotten and people didn't get it right, but let me introduce myself again. So that's where we were. We were sinners. We were orphans. And yet he sought us out and he reconciled us to himself. That's what we sang in um, O Glorious Day, that Jesus came as God, as the Son of God, to die on our behalf so that the sin that was keeping us separated from God would be taken care of so that we can have a good relationship with God. So that's, that's the starting point this morning. We're going to go through a lot of instructions, and it's going to be personal, Okay. I warned you that this was coming. I tried to let you know that we were coming, but this is going to be personal. I'm, we're going to get into your family life this morning. And that's difficult to preach simply for the fact that all of us have a different kind of family. Who would raise their hand and say, I have a perfectly normal family? All right. I don't see those hands. <laughs> we, none of us would say, oh, my family's got it all together. We're perfect. We no, we know our families well enough to know that there's a little bit of dysfunction, that maybe sometimes we don't get things right. Maybe we don't love each other well. And, and, and so as we talk about family life from the truth of Scripture, when we get down to the nitty-gritty point-by-point applications of that, it can get messy because there are things that aren't right in our families, right? So what we're going to try to do as we turn our attention to the Word of God is find the truth, find the principle of the truth that God is communicating to us, and then, church, the hard work is us working together through the week. Is us saying to each other, hey, we read this on Sunday, and I don't know what to do with this. This is my family situation. How do you think I ought to apply the text to Scripture? Church, we have to work together on this because I cannot, in a 20, 30-minute sermon, talk to you about all of your family and all of the background and all of those things, and then take you to the text and apply it. Like, we're going to have to do some work as a church together. And another level of awkwardness, just so that we can be up front, is that my family is actually here this morning, and they get to hear me try and communicate these texts of Scripture. I hope, my hope, is that they'll hear some of what I have been learning over the last weeks and months studying these words, and hopefully they'll connect how I've applied some of these things, but they won't. Uh, let's, let's continue. I just want to hit that verse one more time. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. 
younger women with sisters in all purity. Remember, this is a letter that Paul, who was kind of a church planner, he would drop in and he would plan a church and get things started and he would raise up a guy and that guy he would leave to lead the church. And he left Timothy in charge. So he's writing a letter because he wants to come back and visit Timothy, but he's not sure that he's going to be able to. So he's writing a letter to say, hey, this is how church ought to run in case I don't make it back to you to help you with this. So as we open this chapter 5, remember we talked in chapter 3 about the qualifications for elders and church leadership, and we used the imagery that a pastor is like a father to the church, right? Here he acknowledges that not only is a pastor a leader in the church, a father of the church, he's a sandwich generation father to the church. Do, do we know what the term sandwich generation means? <laughs> we do. A sandwich generation is a person who has kids, has children, and trying to raise children, but then they also have their parents who are aging, and they need to take care of their parents. And so church leaders, and Timothy in particular as a young guy, he's saying, hey, Timothy, I know you've got to lead this church, but you've got to speak respectfully to the people that are older than you in the church. Hey, do not rebuke an older man. Um, I don't know if it's the gain or the monitors, something. I'll try to stand back. <clears throat> Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Hey, you know, old guys can be cranky. I don't know if y'all have ever noticed that. But he's saying, he's saying, hey, don't rebuke those guys. But encourage them. Try to prod them into doing the right thing. Younger men as brothers, which I've seen my kids and how they deal with their brothers. I'm not quite sure if that's necessarily a peaceful situation, but we'll continue. Younger women, or older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity, in all purity, in all purity, as a leader in the church. And that's a standalone verse. I could preach a sermon on that, and I don't, I'm not going to do that to you this morning. But that's a standalone verse that's kind of a hinge, just to acknowledge that the pastor that Paul is writing to is, hey, I know you're a sandwich generation. You've got young kids you're trying to train up. You're trying to train up baby Christians, and you've got Christians that have been in the faith for a long, long time that think they know the right way to get things done, and they're going to be steadfast in that. And hey, we're all going to work together for what? What's the goal of coming together to church? I hear, I hear some answers. I hear some mumbling. I don't know what you're saying. What are you saying? You can talk now. Helping each other. Teaching. What's that? Discipleship. Yeah. Okay, if, if I were to use, and I don't expect you to know this, but if I were to use our, um, the things that we've been talking together in chapter one, the church is for, the church is for faith, the church is for worship in chapter two, the church is for truth in chapter three, in chapter four, the church is for, oh gosh, this is like a pop quiz and I'm failing. Chapter four, nope, oh Sorry. Yeah. The point is, <laughs> there are things that the church is for, and it's not for itself, is the point. We don't build the church to build the church. We build the church for a different purpose. The church is here to serve, and that's what we're going to get to. Let's continue, and we'll see some practical ways that Paul wanted Timothy to make sure he didn't miss. We're going to continue reading in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. 
But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness in their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, this point is, is, is a big one. We're going to actually end up dividing these sections up into two. But the big major point is that we are for honoring our family. And specifically, he's talking about widows. And he and he's even gives a definition of what is a widow, which is helpful for us. What does he say? Honor widows who are truly widows. But what does he mean by truly widows? This means that, hey, there might be some widows who are not truly widows. We're going to get some clarity as we go through about what that means. If a widow, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So he's saying, hey, we want you to show... Or we want you to show honor, we want you to honor widows. But if the widow has a family, then encourage the family to show honor to the widows. If, if, a, if, a, if a woman whose husband has died, who was taking care of her and providing for her needs, and yet she still has children, it's okay, the church is called to encourage the family to take care of their parents because that's pleasing in the sight of God. God wants us to take care of our parents. This uh, is culturally not something that happens very much. We are in a state, like a, a state, a state of the union, like our state Florida is what I'm trying to say. We're in a state where there's a plenty of people who are in nursing homes whose children have abandoned them. And so Paul is saying, hey, hey, if, if, if you find a widow and she has family, it's encourage the family to take care. Why? So that the family can learn to show godliness. We've talked about godliness in, in previous chapters, but this is another expression of godliness, that you take care of your parents. And as a teenager, this was not something that I wanted to hear. As a young guy, this was not something that I wanted to hear. And yet now as, as a, a young man, uh, I don't know how to classify myself, but as a young man looking at this text and realizing what's going on in our culture, what better witness is it than for children who trust God to turn to their parents and say, let me take care of you. I can tell you it's weird to other people. As I've tried to do it, as I invited my parents into my home for a couple of weeks until they could find a house, people did not understand. Everyone said it's a bad idea. And I'm not saying it was easy, but I am saying it was an opportunity to share the gospel to people who were looking on the outside. She who is truly a widow. So what does he mean when he says truly a widow? She who is truly a widow is left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day, night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the godliness for the widow is that if she's left all alone, if, if her husband has died, her children are gone, or they've abandoned her, whatever, if she's left all alone, who does she turn to? 
Okay, from the text, she says she has turned to God and doesn't cease praying day and night and offering supplication. This is somebody who has realized she's left all alone and said, God, you're my only hope. And it's those people that are truly widows. Those women who don't have a way to provide for themselves are truly widows. <laughs> and we have some in our midst. This is what makes this text so awkward to preach is because sometimes we can just talk about the Bible in generic terms. And sometimes we talk about the Bible and you like are looking somebody dead in the eye going like, this is Texas talking about you. And then verse 8 you see it's kind of comma there. Like verse 8 comes back to the family. Hey, you ought to take care of your relatives. And th their concept of what a family was is a little bit different than what ours were. But basically, you got to take care of your relatives, your cousins, people that are related to you, but especially those who are in your household. If you're going to have somebody in your household, then you got to take care of them. you got to show them honor. And honor is a word that's going to show up a couple of times in this text. We're going to use it. It's, it's, it's one of our principles. We're going to use it. But what does honor mean? It's not a concept that our American culture is super familiar with, but the, but the, the vocabulary word, the, the definition includes value. What kind of value do you give to people? How do you value people? So if you are showing honor, you are acknowledging this person is valuable to me. And if somebody is valuable to you, that means a couple of things. The way you treat them is different. So you ought to value your relatives. Come family reunion time, you ought to value your relatives. And especially those who are in your household, value the people who you see every day, who leave the towel on the floor, who leave their shoes by the door and can't just put them away. I've told you a thousand times, and you just put your shoes away. We're supposed to value those people. And he says it really strongly. He says, especially for members of your household, if he... And if he doesn't, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is a testament to your faith in Jesus that you care for the people that are close to you. So this next section is going to give us a little bit more discernment about who is a widow practically and who is not a widow and what that means. So let's read together this next section. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan." But if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So we have these, these two sections of, this, of people who 
don't qualify for being a, a true widow and those that do qualify for being a true widow. The ones who qualify for being a true widow have turned their faith on God and are constantly praying. They're also not less than 60 and they've served the church. What does it say? Having been the, the wife of one husband, and that's not as a, as a specific term, that's not a only one husband, that's a description of an attitude. Were they faithful to the husband that they were married to when he passed away? Having a reputation for good works, she, if she's brought up children and shown hospitality, if she's used the gifts that God gave her for other people, has washed the feet of the saints, she's involved in a church body and caring for the spiritual needs of the people in her church, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Is there anybody who would look at a lady who has done all of those things and say, ah, oh, you don't really need my help? Somebody who doesn't have any means of providing for themselves, and yet she's been, uh, to use a weird term, kind of, has been a saint, has served other people, has lived her life in a faithfulness, and looking, would we say to that person, no, you don't need us, or you, we, don't, we don't need to take care of you? I don't think that we would naturally say that. So why does, Timothy, or why does Paul have to command Timothy to do this? There's, well, some people do, but I think it's less likely that we would say, you don't need our care, and more likely to say, I'm so focused on what I'm doing that I have forgotten that you exist. And it seems like, when he says in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled, there is a program that the church is running. There's something that happens when the church gathers together, there is a function for the church as an organization that they can take care of widows. That's something that they ought to be doing, that we as a church ought to be doing. But then there's also responsibility we've seen for each individual member of the church to also be responsible for their own family. So there are things that you should take care of as a believer in Jesus, as an extension of the church that you just take care of. And then there's the church as an organization should have processes and procedures to help you do that in a way that's honoring to God. It's a partnership, not necessarily, well, why won't the church just do this? The church is supposed to be discerning in who they take care of because he gives some possible pitfalls for, for younger widows. Refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her take care of them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So again, not again. This is something a little bit new. There's younger women who this is one of those situations where I want to be really, really careful in how I talk about this because as a guy, it can sound like I'm just like, girls are stupid, they always say the wrong thing, and that's not what I mean. But there's a tendency here has been identified that, that when a younger woman has lost her husband that she will want to get into everybody's business. And I, I have met women who are like this. And he's saying, hey, for those people, 
It would be better for you to get married again so that you have something to put your attention on. If you don't, if you've lost your husband and you were faithful to him, but you've lost all of that and you don't have anything to focus on, then it's possible that you start to stir up trouble and, and do stuff that isn't worthwhile, which is where he started at the beginning, talking about the false teachers. This is not this is something he's talking specifically about for widows, but it's not something that's exclusively for women. This is for everybody. Stay focused, do good works, serve Jesus, and stop stirring up trouble. Now, church, this is not permission to just bash on women who have just lost their husband. The church sometimes has a tendency to be insensitive because there are places where Scripture is clear, such as this. So if there's a young woman who loses her husband, this is not the first place you need to take her when she's grieving the loss of her husband. There is space for grieving. And there is time where we may bring, or we will show her back to these Scriptures, but it's not right after that happens. We need to be sensitive to the suffering that people are going through. And hey, you're going to have to build a relationship with her in order to be able to say these things to her. You're going to have to enter into her suffering with her in those dark times when she's lost her husband so that when she says, I'm ready to get, or I'm just going to blah, 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 and starts gossiping about people like, hey, let's refocus our attention a little bit. Does that make sense? So that's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about women and about widows. And it's an important case study for whether or not we are honoring our family. Do we show honor to our family? But the next verse, he talks about church leadership. Let's read together. Verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So he changes his attention from widows and people that the church should be caring for to talking about church leadership. And he says the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. So we are forgiving double honor to church leadership. Now that terminology, double honor, does have that idea of value that we talked about. It does have that idea of monetary compensation. But hey, do you remember some of the qualifications for elders back in chapter 3? One of them was not a lover of money. He's not in the game in order to prey off of the sheep and get their money. Elders who rule well are not people that are taking advantage of their congregation. But the ones who rule well are worthy of being paid or compensated for the work that they do. 
It's not necessarily all financial because he's saying he has already talked about the reputation of a pastor. And so he might be saying that reputation plus compensation might be worth, might be the double honor. He's not saying you got to pay a pastor twice what you're making. That just doesn't make sense. But he is saying, hey, the same way that you uh, an ox as it's grinding out the grain, which is an, a little bit of a weird analogy for us. It's, it's Old Testament biblical imagery. But they would have oxen that would grind out the grain, that they would step on it and get everything crushed out. And there were some who would put a muzzle on it so that it wouldn't eat the food as it's working. And the biblical principle was, hey, if somebody's doing the work, let them get some of the benefit. Don't put a muzzle on the ox so it doesn't eat your food. Let it eat some of the food so that it does a better job. He's saying here, don't say, don't get your pastor to be so, so poor that he's, you keep him humble. I've heard that a couple of times. We're not going to pay you well, so we keep you humble. Like that's a little bit of a cop out. But hey, if you are serving well, then you should get some kind of a benefit from the spiritual work that you're doing because that will help you to do a better job. If you want your pastor to do a better job, let him see some return on the work that he's doing. And I don't know how to express this in any other way other than to say I really like working in the garden because I can take a picture of a, a bush or something that I'm getting ready to work on. I can take a picture. I can work for an hour or two. I can come back, stand in that same spot. I can take another picture and I can know things are different because of the work that I did. I really, as a guy, super appreciate being able to see that the work that I've done with my hands has made a difference. When I serve as a pastor, there are conversations that I have with people, there are questions that I ask them, there are directions that I point them in, and sometimes it seems like you're just talking to a brick wall. And I don't mean that as a criticism, I'm just saying there are some times where it feels like there is no work being done. I'm trying, I'm doing my best, and nothing's changing. So the worker is worthy of his wage. Let him get some return. Now, part of his double honor is that you're careful in, in handling accusations against him. What does he say? Look at, uh, at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if someone's accusing an elder of doing wrong, verify that he's doing something wrong. Don't just take it on somebody's word. Seen in the public, where people will just say whatever they want to say out in public, on Facebook, on the news, whatever, and nobody stopped to check, was this actually happening? And our culture is connected as we are today. It doesn't take much of an accusation to completely destroy somebody's reputation. So part of the double honor you give to your church leadership is you check to see that the accusations are true before you pursue them. But part of that double honor is also a double accountability. What does he say? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's saying, hey, if they sin, it's been confirmed, they continue to sin, put them up in front of everybody and confront them publicly. Elders who continue to sin need to be confronted publicly. 
And, and, and Paul is aware of what he's asking Timothy to do because he says, I charge you in the presence of God and the elect angels that you do this without partiality. I don't want to hear about the circumstances. I don't want to hear about exceptions. I'm telling you this is the rule and you'll be accountable before God and the angelic hosts for whether we follow it or not. That's hard. And it's so hard, he says, hey, you need to be discerning in who you appoint to this role. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Which is kind of an odd parenthesis. I think there's probably something very specific that was going on. But he simply says, hey, you know, don't worry. Like, you need to take care of yourself. You're sick. Take what's going to help you get better. And then the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Sometimes it's real, real obvious when somebody's sinning. Sometimes you don't find out for 10 years, and then you're surprised. Church leadership. It's a hard truth. But he also says, so also are the good, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So if the leader is doing good work, at some point it's going to come up. It might look like you know, the pastor, he just works on Sunday. It doesn't. And eventually you're going to, those things are going to come to light, whether good or bad. It's all coming down. So now you're saying, all right, I'm supposed to take care of my family. I'm supposed to take care of my pastor. But, you know, what does that do for me this week? Like, what am I supposed to do this week? There's one more small section I want to address before we close. So let's look at chapter 6, the first two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve <clears throat> excuse me, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So we are, for, we are for honoring our family, we are for giving double honor to church leadership, and we are for giving all honor to our bosses. <laughs> he says, let all who are under yoke as bondservants. He's, um, he's talking about people in the household who would actually serve the family. Their, their, their system of slavery shouldn't be equated with the one that we're familiar with as Americans, but they would have servants in the house who were serving the family. So those who serve as bond servants are slaves. They're tied to the family, but let them serve well and give all honor to their masters. Now, we are not, you know, slaves, but most of us go to work. We have jobs. And so I think the principle here is the same, whether you've got a believing, uh, a believing boss or not, that we work well. Why? What's the reason why? Verse 1, let all who are under yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Hey, church, at some point, good things and bad things are going to come to light. People are going to realize that you are part of the church. 
and they're going to look at your life and they're going to look at the way that you work and they're going to go, was that consistent? And it's possible that if you don't work well, if you are you know, backstabbing or you're trying to slack off or you know, milk the clock for whatever it's worth, that they'll say, I don't know that the God that person serves is worth paying any attention to. Also, our internal relationships are seen by the world at large. What we do in church at some point is public. And more often than not today with the internet, it's public real, real quick. So do your work well, whatever it is, whether you're doing nursing or whether you're a mechanic or whether you're in the dirt, like whatever it is, at the end of the day, do your work really, really well because that points people to Jesus. We're forgiving all honor to our bosses. Do you see where that progression is? I'm going to go back. Well, I'm not, I don't have it on the slide. But we're for honoring our family. Give honor to widows. We're for giving double honor to elders in the church, to church leadership. And we're for giving all honor to our bosses. It grows. So, to conclude, we're for serving those who might not be highly valued. Who is not highly valued today? Our bosses, and man, ask people about their bosses and they've got all kinds of stuff to say. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of people that are not highly valued. Widows, um, especially now that we've got a healthcare system that can assist, there were people who would say, it's not my job, somebody else is going to take care of it. But this is the call of the church, is to take care of those who are not highly valued, to take care of your family. Mm-hmm. Those are some more people, the veterans and people who are disabled, not highly valued. But the church, as the church, we are for serving those who might not be highly valued. And hey, we're doing that. There's a lot of different ways we're doing that, and I could give you a bunch of examples, even this week, of how that has happened and is happening in Grace Church. And I'm not saying that we're not doing this well. I think we are. And part of that is going and serving home. That's next week, isn't it? Next week, we've gathered the money in order to be able to buy these bicycles to give to these young mothers to help support them when it's possible that everybody else has left them alone. Turn their back on them. Oh, you got yourself knocked up. You know, go deal with it. But hey, we're also having a meal for them. We're going to sit down with them. And we're going to sit across the table from people who are not highly valued. And so think about that conversation with a girl you've never met before, whom all you know about her is that she's in this program. And sometimes the things we know about people ahead of time really hinder our conversations with them. But my question is, how did Jesus talk to these people? How did Jesus talk to people? And he knew all of their background. He started with grace. He didn't prejudge it. So grace, as we go into this week, as we are serving those who are not highly valued, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to have hard conversations with people, but we're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this to point everything back to Jesus. He is the one on whose basis we serve and work. And so if you haven't come to trust Jesus for that salvation, you go, this is just a lot of work. This is a lot of things to check off. This is a lot of things to do. 
I'd invite you to trust him first. That's the starting point. That's where we started. That's where I'll end. It's an invitation. You say, gosh, that's a lot of stuff. I don't think I can do all that stuff. I don't agree with all that stuff. All that stuff is messy people. Ugh. Jesus is the one who values people, and we get our value for people through him. But we are for serving those who might not be highly valued. Let's pray together.